The scripture reading tonight is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for the baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befits repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff will burn with the unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord. Welcome to week two of Advent. How's it been going for everyone? Good. Advent, right? Everybody knows Advent, meaning the coming or the arrival of something important, as in the advent of the Pop-Tart made breakfast time fun and easy, or the advent of the computer made personal relationships less of a priority, or the advent of the Segway made walking optional, or at least it was thought at one point. Advent in the liturgical calendar refers to the celebration of the coming of God into the world as Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, and like Lent, but less so, is seen as a time of preparation and expectation. It's going to be a very House of Mercy Christmas. In this time of expectation, this anticipation of the celebration of the birth of Jesus, I'm going to talk about snakes. There are snakes in the Bible, some well-known, others not as much, but they crawl on their bellies through the books from Genesis to Revelation. Both the passages read for today have snakes in them. In the passage from Matthew, John the Baptist calls out to the religious leaders who are coming to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. And in the Isaiah passage, the prophet says, The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters that cover the sea. I had not noticed this in the past, these snakes, and this being the liturgical 
uh, year that we've had of some alternative lectionaries. I don't think I'm going to follow, follow the uh, straight path. I'm going to find the, follow the winding path of the snakes here. And I wondered if these snakes had anything to do with each other, all these snakes, or if all the snakes in the Bible maybe were up to the same thing, or did they carry the same metaphorical meaning? Snakes, I found, most often show up to represent deceit, as in Matthew's passage. John calls the religious leaders a brood of vipers to characterize them as deceitful. At first, this seems an odd way to greet people who are coming to be baptized, but he doesn't trust them. He questions their motives, and to what they have um, and what they have done to make him feel that way. The reader of Matthew doesn't know yet, but it comes out as one reads further into Matthew's book. And by calling them a brood of vipers, he's probably calling them the children of the devil, because when the devil is cast out of heaven, he is called the father of lies, the great snake that, that deceives the world. And, of course, the most well-known snake in the book is the snake in the garden. The snake in the grass from Genesis 3 who deceives Eve. The snake says, if you eat that fruit, surely you will not die. The day you eat the fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like gods, knowing good from evil. When God asks Eve why she ate the fruit, she says that the snake deceived me. And I ate. Even Paul uses the snake reference when he says, both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. No one has understanding. There is no one who seeks after God. All have turned away. They use the tongues, their tongues to deceive. The venom of the viper is under their lips, which also is a quote from a couple of Psalms. Snakes are also used as symbols of God's justice or vengeance or punishment. The most interesting snake punishment story is in Numbers. I bet you don't imagine that sentence often. But yes, the most interesting snake punishment story is in the book of Numbers. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our souls loathe this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord, and he take his please tell him to take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon the snake on the pole, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it on a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. And of course, reference is made to this story in the third chapter of John when Jesus is talking to another religious leader and the leader is asking him how he can have eternal life. And Jesus tells him, in the same way that Moses lifted up the snake on a pole in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now Jesus is referring to his death on the cross. 
So as Moses lifted up the snake on the pole so that anyone who looked at it would live, like that, Jesus would be lifted up on the cross so that anyone who looked to him would live, have life. This is different from other snake as punishment stories because it also has a snake as savior story. It's hard to catch the snakes of the Bible, though. Sometimes they're working for the devil, sometimes they're working for God. Sometimes they are things to fear, and sometimes they are things to marvel at. As in Proverbs, where the poet says, Here be three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. In hunting the snakes of the Bible, I found a lot of articles that sought to set the record straight on the misconception the Bible thinks, um, the misconception that the Bible thinks that snakes are bad. Quite a few Christian herbatologists out there, and uh, they would have, and who would have guessed that there were a lot of Bible scholars, snake scientists around? But I guess there are Christians under every rock, huh? One article took the Genesis account line by line to show that God created the snake, and it was in the garden, and so it was good. And But maybe the devil deceived the snake. So the snake was not bad. And then added as an aside, by his way of reasoning, that that must also mean that if the snake was not bad, that probably neither are women. Maybe he's an amateur Bible scholar or herbatologist, I don't know. Not a feminist. Any herbatologist for Christ, um, another herbatologist for Christ concludes his article. So does the Bible call snakes evil? Nope. If you glance through the verses, you'll never find any place where snakes are specifically called evil critters. Rather, the snake is used as a symbol for everything from Satan to alcohol, from lying to wisdom, quite a range. Symbolism is used to make it easier to understand something and does not denote inherent characteristics. For example, the dove is used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, but there's nothing particularly holy about a bird. I wonder what Christian ornithologists would say about that, or Debbie Blue. So this brings me back to the odd snake as God's judgment, snake as man's salvation story. I found another reference to this story in 2 Kings. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Aziz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it the hissing snake. This is where it gets a little bit like, I did not know what I thought happened to that bronze serpent after Moses used it in the wilderness, 
that serpent that gave life to all the snake-bitten, I never even thought about it. But I didn't think that the children of Israel would still be worshiping it 500 years later. But I guess, of course, that would keep it... Um, once once um, people it gave people new life and it was made by Moses, what are they going to do? But obviously, this was not what God intended. Otherwise, Hezekiah would not have been praised for destroying it. This instrument of God's life-giving salvation was turned into an idol and worthy of destruction. Why does John's Jesus use it as a symbol of a definitive act of salvation, then? Snakes move around. They're hard to catch. They are not good or bad. But all this snake study brings me back to the religious leaders and why John didn't trust them, why he questioned their motives. I think he knew or he suspected was true when it comes to human interaction with God. We make religions, we make rules, we make idols. We are idol worshipers. God acts, meets us at a time or place, and then we worship that time and place. Or we take that part of the interaction with God that we can control, and we make that God. We worship the things that we can control. But maybe God is more like a snake that moves fast and is hard to catch. An idol is something that is dead, has no life. We worship at the altar of a stagnant pool. God is not dead. God is not like a snake stuck on a pole for 500 years. What do we look forward to in Advent 2,000 years later? What do we anticipate? What do we celebrate? Is it a dead thing? Or can we find in it something that makes us alive again? We should just know, we should just try to figure out as we move through Advent towards Christmas, what is dead and what gives us life and then worship that, look forward to that, let us celebrate that.